Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are beginning a new series here on Wednesday night. Uh, so tonight we will be in 1 Thessalonians. We will be in 1 and 2 Thessalonians for, I would say, the better part of probably May and June. And uh, from there, we'll likely begin a, a separate series on Wednesday evenings in the Old Testament, going uh, through the Bible series from the beginning of the Old Testament. But I have felt led for some time now to tackle some of the topics that we find in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. I'll go into a bit of an intro to this book and the context behind it here shortly. We've, we've made our way now over the last uh, over three years through a number of different books, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. We've dealt with now verse by verse all of the prison epistles, those letters from the Apostle Paul that were written from prison. We've not dealt with all of the Apostle Paul's letters at this point, uh, but first and and 2 Thessalonians are two of his letters. And so I want to dive into these letters here tonight because I believe that they have uh, a great deal of practical application like any book of the Bible. But these two letters in particular, I think, have some wonderful application for us uh, in the time in which we are living. What we see within these two letters, especially 1 Thessalonians, is a, a letter that is very practical from the standpoint of dealing with foundational doctrinal issues as it pertains to our faith, especially that of the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. I know that this topic is very much on people's minds right now. Uh, in fact, I touched on this topic a few weeks ago as it pertains to the rapture of the church and Jesus's return, because I also know that that very topic uh, in some people creates a little bit of fear and anxiety. And it is my desire that as we make our way through these letters that we would, each of us, come to a place where we can all proclaim Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. That we would live our lives, as it were, in anxious anticipation of His return. And that's what these letters are about. These letters are about how to live in light of His return. And so I want us to consider these here this evening and over the next uh, several weeks, because I believe that uh, where we are at in our lives, where we're at in our community, where the church is at right now, on the grand stage of Scripture, these are very important books for us to consider at this point in time. And so uh, without further ado, we'll go ahead and dive into uh, the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the church in Thessalonica, uh, and we'll consider chapter 1 here tonight. Uh, if you would, let's go ahead and read uh, all 10 verses here tonight to give us context of the beginning of this letter. If you'd read along with me here, beginning in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you, for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. 
For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you agree with me in prayer once more? Father, this is your word. Your word which you exalt above your own name, Lord, and we are grateful for it. We're thankful for it here tonight, and we pray once again by the power of your Spirit, give us understanding. Uh, Bless our time in it here now, and uh, help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, particularly the topics we'll consider in uh, both of these books, Lord. They are very relevant for us today. Uh, These are things that we should consider even more often likely than what we do. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work, that we would come to very much appreciate the truths that are laid out here in these two books, and um, begin, perhaps, uh, if for the first time, to really begin to live our lives in light of uh, the truths that are given to us here. So, Father, we love you and praise you. Bless our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, again, while, while the two letters of, or, or the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, they come after several of his other letters. We, we know that uh, we have various letters of Paul um, that are given to us here that appear prior to Thessalonians in the canon of Scripture. Uh, nevertheless, this, uh, particularly 1 Thessalonians here, is really one of the first letters written by the Apostle Paul to one of the churches that the Lord used Paul to birth. Uh, this letter is written somewhere uh, between the years 51 and 53 AD. So we're at a point where we're sort of uh, roughly halfway between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the eventual uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So it's it's been anywhere from, uh, say, 20 to, to 23 years since Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And uh, this particular letter is written to a church that was involved in one of Paul's second missionary journeys. Paul's trip to Thessalonica, it comes between stops uh, in Philippi and then Berea and Athens and eventually Corinth. And so this is a relatively brief stop that Paul makes uh, in Thessalonica on this second missionary journey. He spends, Paul spends just shy of a month in this city. In fact, not even, not even quite a month, about three weeks that he spends with this church. In fact, if you want to take a quick look here in Acts chapter 17, just turn over to Acts chapter 17 for a moment, we get the account of his time spent there in Thessalonica. Uh, prior to this, Uh, Paul had come from Philippi. Uh, That's where we had seen the Philippian jailer uh, saved. And now he comes into the area of Thessalonica there in the beginning of chapter 17. Let's go ahead and read this here. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. So again, about three weeks, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So here, Paul is preaching the gospel to the church in Thessalonica. And some of them were persuaded, verse four, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. So you had some of the Jews, as well as many, a great multitude of Gentile, what they would call God-fearers, and not a few of the leading women, 
women joined Paul and Silas. So he sees here, as a result of the preaching of the gospel, a great multitude come to faith in Christ. And it says in verse 5, But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I hope what you'll find as we read through these letters, uh, these two letters written to the church in Thessalonica, that though Paul had spent only a matter of three weeks there, that the work that was accomplished by the power of the Spirit was absolutely incredible. The church that was birthed there was a powerful church. We see that even in the initial greeting that Paul gives to this church as he's writing to them now sometime after his first visit there. An incredible amount happened in such a short period of time. And that's the way that God works. We maybe, many of us have seen that happen in our own lives, or we've seen that happen in the lives of others. How, how quickly God can get, begin to transform a people, can transform a community, can transform a family. It's an absolutely incredible work that the Lord can do. Now, Thessalonica was a Roman colony. Okay. The way in which Rome worked as it conquered the then known world is it didn't necessarily take area and, and fully absorb it into itself. It knew that its dominion was over them, but they allowed uh, various areas to sort of function as they had functioned over time. They just slowly began to sort of infiltrate the area and indoctrinate the area. This being a Roman colony in Macedonia, uh, the modern city still exists today. It's Thessaloniki, which is in Greece. It's along the Aegean Sea, and so this is a seaport city. And so it was a popular city. But nevertheless, it was, it, it was wrought with, with Roman culture, with pagan culture. It was indoctrinated uh, as such. But there was also a small Jewish presence there, as we, as we read about there in Acts 17. And in only a few weeks, Paul had led multitudes to Christ. But opposition to the gospel came quickly. And Paul departed, but in time he sent Timothy back to check on the church. And then Timothy, in his return to Paul, brings with him some questions. He comes to Paul and he says, the church there has many questions about these things. And it's those questions that prompt this letter. Paul writing to them to say, I I, I long for you, I miss you, and here are the answers to some of the questions that you have. And so what's amazing then about the short time that Paul spent there in addition, I mean, the, the fact that there was such revival there in such a short time was, was amazing in and of itself. But what we see in the letter that he writes here that we'll see over the next uh, few weeks, the questions that he answers shows us that Paul, when he was there, wasted no time in teaching them very foundational doctrines of the faith, including such things as the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. And, and so this should be a lesson to the church today as we see how many churches tend to stay away from some of the hard stuff 
Uh, sometimes because we think, oh, they're just not ready for it yet, or maybe this is just too difficult of a topic to teach on, especially when we think about things like the rapture. And yes, I absolutely believe the rapture is very clear in Scripture. I think it's evident there. I think the language tells us that. I know that people will debate that, and we'll get into some of that over the next few weeks. Uh, hopefully no Christian would debate the, the return of Christ. That's pretty clear in Scripture throughout. Some of these things are difficult topics to deal with a little bit, and so some people tend to shy away from it. But yet we see here that Paul began to deal with these things with young believers very early on in their faith. Now, granted, as we see in the letter, he also needs to explain some of these things again. He needs to provide clarification on some of these things. There's a little confusion that exists. But far be it from us to not teach a topic that we see in Scripture just because we think there's going to be confusion. No, that's part of the process is learning and teaching and growing and coming to an understanding. Furthermore, here we see that the letter as a whole, what it really emphasizes is how Christians are to live in light of Jesus's return. And for us, we know that his return is imminent. Now, what that means is, what does imminent mean? It means that it is it, it is the very next thing that could happen. It means it's, it's any time now. As it relates to prophecy in Scripture, there's essentially no other events that are necessary to occur before the rapture of the church can happen. It could happen at any moment. If something like that is imminent, if the fact that, and what I believe, is that the church could be taken out at any given moment, isn't it important for us to understand the details of all of that, to know what the Bible has to say about all of that, to be living our lives moment by moment, not in fear, but in awareness of that, that the knowledge of that would compel us to live our lives each and every day in a particular way because we know and because we're thinking it could be any moment. And again, that is not something that should create anxiety or fear, rather an excitement. It should motivate us. Each of us, I suspect, at some point in our lives, maybe on a regular basis, wake up in the morning excited about something. Difficult to sleep because you're looking forward to the events that are coming the next day. Rising in the early morning, even though you may not be an early morning riser because you're just so excited to go and do whatever it is that you've had planned for some time. How about what is for us the next great event in the history of the world? That's about to come. I mean, Jesus being raised from the dead and defeating death and ascending into heaven, that's the greatest event in all of eternity. But there's still exciting things to come, one of which is the rapture of the church and the glorious return of Jesus Christ. That should get us excited each and every day. This letter helps us to understand how should we live our lives in light of that. And you know, we tend to think about his return or the, the rapture of the church as either this sort of great escape, Lord, get us out of here, you know, people, including myself, I've done this many times, we, you know, as we see what's happening in the world, we grow tired of different things, and we mature in our faith, we think to ourselves, Lord, we say, Lord Jesus, come, because we just want to get out of here, right? And I think to some degree that's okay. Uh, but some, I know, also look at this, and it creates some fear, because there is uh, maybe a desire to experience more things in this life, maybe an uncertainty about what all of these events are going to look like. But the promise of his return really is, though it is something that should create excitement in terms of our ability to sort of get out of the mess of this world today, what I do think is more important for us as believers is that the promise of his return is intended to influence how we live today. It should change the way in which we live today. 
it should cause us to say, well, because this is coming soon, I need to be, I need to get to work. I need to, I need to be about doing the things that the Lord has called me and gifted me to do. So yes, I say, Lord Jesus, come, because I am excited for much of what that will deliver us from. But I also need to take that as a reminder of, Lord, you called me to do something. I need to be faithful in doing it. We considered last week in our study on Wednesday night, um, there in Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, and the need for revival, and the need for us to bring the Word of God to people and to trust and have faith in the Word of God and its power to restore and to breathe life into things again. This is very much in the same vein that as we think about and hope for His return, it should motivate us to live our life in a certain way each day. In fact, 1 John 3.3 3, uh, 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we have that hope in him, which by extension of that is a hope in his return, well, there should be a work happening in us, a purifying, a sanctification that's happening each day, a pursuit of him each and every day. You know, in Thessalonica, they found an ancient inscription, a plaque in the city from this particular time. And the plaque read, after death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again. It gives us some insight into the culture of that time and that place. This belief that after you die, there's nothing. Nothing left, nothing more. And so is it any wonder why Paul began to deal with so many issues in a short period of time with people here who now had hope, Jesus Christ, who had hope in a risen Lord who offered them eternal life, that he was fundamentally changing their thinking. For them to go from a place where when, when you're dead, you're dead, lights out nothing more to this idea of there is something beyond this life. And so, of course, he had to continue to dive into these things to explain to them what all this meant. And once again, to help them understand, how should I live my life today now that I know this truth? What Paul deals with in both the first and second letters are foundational doctrines, as I've mentioned before, and really how we are to live in light of his return. This is why we're studying this. This is about discipleship for those who are living in anticipation of Christ's return. And my hope, as I've mentioned already once again, is that uh, we all would come to a place where we become passionately engaged and excited about the return of Christ, that each and every day we would say, I'm living in, in light of that truth. And so once again here, now as we look uh, through this, this chapter, let's consider first just the greeting here. This is a pretty traditional greeting. As Paul says, Paul, Silvanus, which can also be translated Silas. This is Silas and Timothy who are with him. He mentions them in his letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who as believers they were now in. The same could be said of us, Christian, if Paul were writing the letter to us today, that we are a church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, in God, the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. He says to them, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a traditional greeting that the Apostle Paul would write. We see it in uh, essentially all of his letters. The only letter that we see some variation is in Galatians. That's the one letter where he gets quickly down to business and just suggests to them that they're being pretty foolish. Um, but in all of the other letters, it's this traditional greeting, and we see a pattern with Paul. It's grace and then peace. The same is true in our lives. We need to understand grace. Once we do, we understand peace. You don't have peace without grace. It's grace first, unmerited favor. We understand what God has done for us, and through that, we experience peace. There's an order to the words that Paul 
writes here. And he says in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of, listen, work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. We're going to consider each of these things that Paul mentions. They are significant here, not just simply part of his greeting. And patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. He says, thanks, essentially, and prayers for all. I I thank God for you. I'm praying for you. We know that Paul has regularly said that he prays without ceasing. Imagine Paul's prayer journal as he thinks about all the different people he's encountered on his mission journeys, the, the churches that the Lord has birthed, and the way in which he prays for them all. He says, remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. This reminds me of a verse that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're familiar with that chapter. It's the love chapter, right? We hear the love chapter read a lot of times at weddings. And uh, it's a wonderful thing as we want to consider there as people are enjoying their marital bliss and sharing their vows of, oh, this day that's all about celebrating love. And what is love, what is love all about? And, and my goodness, do we need reminded in marriage of what, that, of what love is truly about, right? Is it's patient and, and kind and long-suffering and all these different things. But at the end of the chapter, as he comes, as, as the Apostle Paul comes to the end of that description, he says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. But it's interesting here is he just, he uses these words. These, these are consistent sort of graces that he mentions in each of his letters, and he mentions them here. The first one that he says here, and he doesn't just simply say faith, hope, and love. No, he applies other descriptors to these things. The first one of which he says, your work of faith. Now, immediately, this should cause some of us to say, well, wait a second. I thought those two were, were sort of separated. That we, how are we supposed to have a, a work of faith? That I thought faith was independent of works. And of course, we have the, the letter of James that, that really helps us to understand, you know, show me work without faith or show me faith without works. So how do these things fit together? What is this work of faith that he's alluding to here? Well, listen, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, verses 29 and 30, in John 6, 29 and 30, Jesus says to them, it says, then they said to him, excuse me, they, they are saying to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answers them in, verse, in the following verse and says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. You see, when we think about a work of faith, it is in fact a demonstrated faith. What Paul is recognizing here in the life of this church is that you are showing me your faith and how it's lived out and how it's carried out. Our faith, our life of faith should bear fruit. Let's think for a moment, and I need to turn, turn there, and Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 5, Luke 5, 1 through 11. This is in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he goes and he calls, he begins to call his disciples. Look what it says here in Luke chapter 5. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, 
I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. I'll pause there. This, on the part of Simon Peter, was a work of faith. Yes, as we see here, we can gather that Peter was probably a little skeptical at this request. Nevertheless, God, Jesus, here gives him a word, and what does Peter do? He obeys it. He obeys and believes the word of God. That is a work of faith. And here Paul is recognizing the first thing here. He is saying, I'm remembering without ceasing your work of faith. This is them acting upon the word of God. You see, friends, faith works. Could the same be said of our faith? Does our life, does the way we live our lives demonstrate faith in God? The second thing he mentions is a labor of love. Now, you might be saying immediately, well, <laughs> is love work? Especially, and forgive me, I, I, I don't mean to be critical here, but of you younger folk who are experiencing love, you might be of the opinion that, oh, no, love is not work, right? Love is bliss. Love is a wonderful thing. But listen, love can be work. But let's understand what Scripture has to say about this. He says here it's a labor of love. Well, what does Scripture tell us? But in John chapter 14, verse 15, in John 14, 15, Jesus himself says what? If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, have you ever broken a commandment? Well, do you love him? You might be saying, well, yes, I do love him. But, but wait a second, but you said you broke one of his commandments. You see, sometimes loving is a labor. But why do we do it? Because we love See, sometimes love is hard work, but because we love a person, we commit ourselves to it. And so here, Paul is recognizing that there is a labor of love, that he recognizes that in their life, they love Jesus Christ. And so they are doing some things that to the outside world, or maybe even to some of them, it may seem difficult. It may seem hard, but yet for them, because of their love for Christ, they're committed to it. They're not considering it. It, doesn't, it isn't work to them because the motive for it all it trumps the other thing. What is work to you? What are the things in your life that is work? What is it maybe in your life that you just hate doing? It's just like, ah, oh, I, just, I just don't want to do this. You know, that's not a labor of love. When you love something, the work, though it may be hard, is a blessing. You want to do it. You want to give yourself to it. You know, it's been said, and we've, we consider this a lot. A lot of people love the, uh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's Gary Chapman, forgive me if it's not, uh, the five love languages. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's an incredible assessment of how we love and how we like to receive love. And, you know, it asks the question throughout, what is your love language? What is that for you? Well, what is God's love language? And it's obedience. God's love language is obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so when we love, even though it may be hard, it compels us to do some of those things that, uh, that may be difficult, but we commit ourselves to it. And that's what this church was and we were carrying out a labor of love. And then finally, he mentions patience of hope. Now, patience, as it's defined, is the ability to accept or to tolerate delay, trouble, 
or suffering without getting angry or upset. I'm just going to confess to you right now, uh, sometimes I'm not very patient, okay? When I have something in my mind, uh, when I have an idea of a timeline, and all of a sudden I'm forced to delay, it's not going to happen at the plan that I had created or that I had gotten in my mind. It's a work to not get upset, not become angry about that. Of course, maybe I'm the only one that's ever dealt with that, right? I hear many people say that they're praying for patience. And as we often say, well, that's a, that's a doozy of a thing to pray for, right? Because how does God grow us? Well, he gives us opportunities to practice those very things oftentimes, right? And so a lot of times people are having to practice patience. Nevertheless, here we see that he's recognizing their patience of hope. Consider our study of Hebrews in the earlier part of our study in Hebrews. If you can think back that far, I know we're over a year now in our study through Hebrews. But in the earlier part, we dealt with this idea of, uh, of this time in which we now live in. This time that is the in-between time. Where certain things have occurred and we're waiting now for something else. And as we find ourselves in that in-between time, what we, what we should strive to do is to rest in the already of what God has accomplished in our lives. And to hope in the not yet. We're waiting for what it is that we're hoping for. That's patience of hope. And what we will see is that this young church is living by hope. What is it that they're hoping in? Well, they're hoping in the return of Christ. And that very hope that he will return and the confidence of that, it sustains them. Because mind you, even though they're a young church, they're already dealing uh, with persecution. In fact, it was only a matter for some of them that within days of accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that there was an angry mob that set out against them and drove the teacher whom they loved out of town. And so it's this hope, this promise that sustains them and gets them through. Now, what I want you to note is how each of these items, this faith, hope, and love, or faith, love, and hope, uh, how it will appear again here shortly in the remaining uh, works, if you will, that Paul recognizes in their lives. Uh, Let's continue on, though, in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Here we deal with this topic of election. We'll dive into this a little bit more here later. Election comes. It's mentioned throughout Scripture. Election is this idea that we struggle with that, that is tied to God's sovereignty. It's woven into this idea of sovereignty and providence and predestination and election. It's this idea without using those big words of God chose me, I didn't choose him. And people struggle with this whole concept, but the fact is both are there, okay? When it says here, and Paul recognizes here that they they were elected by God, he says, based off of your behavior, the things that you are doing right now, it's showing that uh, that you are elect, that God chose you. He's He's basically saying it's clear that you're saved. And we sometimes can struggle with this. Some people don't and other people do. Here's the deal. Both are in Scripture. Elections in Scripture. Free will is in Scripture. Isaiah 55, chapter 1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or in Revelation 22, 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Or in John 737, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts. So here it is. The fact is God chose you, Christian. If you're a believer today, God chose you. You are elect. 
It is not for us to understand every bit of how all of that works. And if you are a Christian, praise God that you chose to accept him and not to reject him. Unbeliever, to those who have yet to surrender their lives to Christ, if you're upset that you've not been picked to be on the team, as it were, say yes to him and you will be. The fact is, you've exercised your free will and you are elect. If you don't like it, go ahead and protest it with God and see what that accomplishes. Nothing. There's much that we can't understand about God's sovereignty and how he works. But what we see in Scripture is that both are true and Paul readily accepts it as he says it here in Scripture in verse 4. Moving on in verse 5, and we can revisit that one. And as a matter of fact, if you want to throw that in the Q&A for Friday, go ahead. Uh, we can tackle some of that. <laughs> uh, in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Here, what he's speaking to is the power of the word of God. What Paul's dealing with here is he's saying, listen, you recognize and this is all recognition to the church here. He's saying, you recognize that we didn't come to you just as men sharing with you a bunch of words. This wasn't just some self-help philosophy. This isn't just a book that Paul wrote on, on how to be your best self. No, he came to him with the power, with the truth of the word of God. And Paul says, you recognize that, that it wasn't about me and it wasn't about my words. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's what was preached to them. And we need to recognize that same thing today. As we seek to live our lives in light of the return of Jesus, as we seek to uh, live our lives in a way where we are an example to the community around us, let's recognize here that we are living our lives and striving to live our lives according to the power of the Word of God. We have the power of the Spirit working in us, and we have the living Word of God right here to, to lead and to guide us through His Spirit. We know elsewhere, as you're probably already thinking, in Hebrews 4.12, what does it say of the Word of God? But that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No different than last week, again, as we looked at our study in Ezekiel. Do you believe in the power of the Word of God? What Ezekiel was called to do was to preach the Word of God, to believe that it had the power to breathe life once again into those dry bones. Do you believe that? Here I am two weeks in a row asking you, do you believe this? Are you living your life in a way where it shows that you believe this Word? Or in John chapter 16 and verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is John 16, 7 through 11. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What Jesus is saying here is the spirit will come. And it's that what Paul is recognizing here is they brought them the word of God. They told them the gospel. It was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what transformed their lives. And that's what's going to transform lives today. In verse 6 and 7, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You see the power of the Holy Spirit there? So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Listen, 
We don't often see it written that you have much affliction with joy. How many of you can say amen to that? Yes, affliction with joy. I love it, right? No way. But yet that's the case as believers in Jesus Christ is that we can experience affliction and do so with joy. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. We've been talking about that recently in our study in Hebrews. Because why? What does God use those? How does he use those trials in our life? But to discipline us, to change us, to transform us. And here we see that when one endures much affliction, but they do so with joy, they become great examples to all. They become examples. And so this young church had become an example to all the other believers, to all who believed in this area because of how they received Christ and how they experienced affliction, but did so with joy. Now, listen, I want you to understand, Christian, this does not mean, nor do I want you to feel condemned if you're experiencing some sort of affliction, but you're struggling with joy. Does scripture compel you to have joy? Yes. We can't ignore that. Does that mean, however, that you don't allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to help bear your burden? To be transparent and to share and to say, hey, I'm struggling right now. I'm dealing with affliction. And by the way, I'm not very joyful about it. Go ahead and be honest about it, but be honest and transparent in a way where you're, you're willing to receive instruction, you're willing to receive exhortation, you're willing to be challenged, you're willing to have your perspective changed on the matter. That's okay, as long as in humility we allow the Lord to work in our lives and search our hearts. Now, why did they have such joy in the midst of affliction? Because they had the hope of their salvation, because they had a knowledge of the Word of God, which at this particular time was the very things that Paul had taught them that become the Word that, that, that we have and we study today, many of it, much of it rather. In verse 8, we read, For from you the Word of the Lord has sounded forth. Isn't that wonderful? Think about that. Think about if this was said of you. For from you the Word of the Lord has sounded forth. The word is going forth because of your life. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Listen, it would be easy here to sort of build a case for um, some sort of pride in, in our church to try and do something out of gain for our own reputation and our own name. But there is to some degree some truth in this, right? We, we represent Christ. Never forget that. And for to us to have a good reputation, for us to have a good name is a wonderful thing. For our church to have a good reputation and a good name is a wonderful thing. And you know how much I love it when I hear people say things like, oh, I know about Calvary Northeast. I've heard about you. That the word would go forth so that in Irmo and in Lexington and West Columbia and Sumter and different areas that they would say, oh, I know that church. I know somebody from that church. What a wonderful person. Or they ministered to me or cared for me. So that as me as a pastor, any one of you, if we go to different places, we don't even need to explain where we're from and what we're about because people know. Not so that we can make Calvary Chapel famous, but so that we can say it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God. What do we say to so many people who come to this church and make it their church home because they say, oh, the people are wonderful. It's such a diverse body. And it's sadly a rare thing today in our, in our community. That, and people say, I just felt like I was at home. And, and, and what do we tell them? Do we pull out our 10-page guide that says, well, here's how we did that. Here's how we built this. Here's how we manufactured a work of the Holy Spirit in this place. 
No, I have no such binder. I have no document. I didn't read a book on it other than this one. And, and by the way, it's not me and it's not you and it's not any one of us, but all of us being used as different parts of the body of Christ, being knit together of one spirit, Holy Spirit having the reign in this place and producing an awesome work. That's the kind of testimony we want. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying about this church. He said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you because wherever I go, you're an example. I don't even need to say anything. They're already talking about the Thessalonians. And so see the examples of these young believers. And they were young, young in the Lord. Never mind that they were young in the faith. You know, they may have had questions about things. They may have been getting some stuff wrong. They may have been confused about some things here and there, but they were willing to ask the questions. They were willing to say, hey, teach me more about this. I'm confused about this. Does this mean this? They wanted to learn. They wanted to know. But their zeal for the Lord, that had an effect on many. They didn't need to go from town to town pretending like they were the, they, they were the, the, the next uh, preacher who was coming to town who was just going to be, you know, this, this, this church planner who could launch these churches and grow them to this. They didn't need to pretend like they were these, uh, uh, the, uh, these biblical elitists who knew Scripture f- from front to back. and had. Every, I said, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to understand it. No, they just had a love for the Lord, a work of faith, a labor of love, a patient hope. Verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see this now is, as Paul beginning to bring this chapter to an end and we'll, we'll close here soon. He begins to recognize then the very testimony, not that he wasn't already dealing with their testimony. It was clear here, but this is, this is all just recognition. This is his greeting. This is him just recognizing how proud he is of them for how they live their lives. And it should be for each of us to look at this and to say, would the same be said of me? Am I living my life in this way? He says here again in verse 9, for they themselves, these are the people that heard about them that Paul went to and he didn't need to say anything because other people were saying, I already know. I've already heard. I'm amazed by these people. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. He's saying, they told me how we came to you and the things that happened. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now think about what he already recognized. That there was a, there was a work of faith and a labor of love. You see, right here what we see happening, what he's describing here, this was faith. This was their work of faith. That they turned from idols to a living and true God. And this was also the, the loving relationship here, the labor of love in being obedient. You see, if you look back at verse 3, you can see how these things connect. And here's the amazing thing that I want us to understand here, not only about their own lives, but in the way in which, because it says, the manner of entry we had to you. How was that? How did Paul approach these people? He came into a town that he didn't know and he didn't know the people. He came into this pagan culture, this idolatrous culture, and what did he do? Did he begin to tell them how all the ways in which their worship of idols was wrong? Did he come and start to point out to them all the things that they were doing in their lives and say, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that should change and you shouldn't do that and shame on you for this and that. No, scripture tells us what he did. What did he do? He came into Thessalonica and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. He gave them Christ and they believed, and in their belief, they repented and turned from idols. You see, in Acts 17, what we read there in one of the verses, it says, these people who turned the world upside down. 
You see, in some respects, we could look at that and we could say, man, as the disciples were going about and on their missionary journeys, that these were people who were just sort of like turning everything upside down, upending the apple cart, kind of making, uh, I don't want to use the term chaos, but it was just sort of like, man, all this stuff is happening. But in another respect, what they were doing here was they were taking what people had known, what they had come to understand, what they perceived as truth, and they were flipping it on its head, saying, let me tell you something that's going to turn your world upside down. Let me tell you about a God who loves you so much that even though he knew that you were going to do this, he still created you. And he loved you so much that from the beginning of creation, he built into his plan, his all of creation, he built in a plan of salvation that he would send his one and son whom he loved, Jesus Christ, who would willingly step down from the throne and he would come into this earth and become a man. This is the equivalent of a human being becoming a maggot. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be so graphic there. You've heard that analogy before from me, right? But, but a human being looking at something that was just dead and disgusting and saying, I'll go ahead and become one of those. Why? Because I want to redeem that. I want to make that into something that it was truly created to be. And so Jesus comes into this world and, and he loves us so much that in, in absolute humility, he willingly gives himself to us and he gives himself unto the cross and the work of the cross and death. And he dies a terrible death and is resurrected again, defeating death, such that not only could he demonstrate to us mercy, but also grace by giving us eternal life with him in heaven. And he comes in and that's what turns their world upside down because these people who believe that after death, you're done, no more meeting again, nothing else, that they worship these idols that do absolutely nothing for them. Paul comes in and he gives them Jesus. And that's what changes their lives. He doesn't come in and condemn them for the things that they're doing. He comes and he gives them Jesus. Because, you know, turning to God meant repentance from those other things. Listen, we need to understand this, Christians. Why do people change? Or why do people not change? Look at it however you want. People change when we identify with their motivation, when we give them something better. You see, you can come into my house and you could tell me everything about what I have in my house is terrible and leave it at that. And I just feel like, well, thanks for insulting me. Your TV's terrible. Your sofa's terrible. Your food's terrible. You could come in and tell me all those things and what would I feel like? I'd just feel condemned. Why do we expect the unsaved world to act like they're saved? Listen, there's somebody out there right now who doesn't know Jesus and they're doing drugs. And you can go to them right now and say, drugs are bad. And all that's going to make them feel is one condemned and remind them that, yeah, I, I, people have told me plenty of times that these are bad. Or somebody in prostitution or somebody in, in an adulterous relationship or somebody who's just living for the, the cares of this world, just indulging themselves, spending their money on anything they can because they're just trying to fill this void that's in their life. And you can tell them about everything that they're doing and say, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. And you've done nothing for them other than heap guilt and condemnation upon them. You want them to change, tell them what's better. Tell them what's better. Give them what's better. You can come into my house and you can say, your TV is terrible. This one's way better. And now I might go, well, let's check it out. Or anything else, right? You get the picture. That's what Paul did when he came to this church. Is he said, you're an idolatry. You're pagans. You're lost. And he didn't say everything you're doing is wrong. He said, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is better. And it said multitudes believed them and joined them. And in their belief, because Jesus was better in their belief. You see, idolatry was back here. And he was presenting Jesus, which was better here. And as they're looking this way and they begin to hear the gospel and they believe, they turn and they come to Jesus. And so in their belief, repentance comes. 
We got to make sure we don't come to people and demand repentance and then belief. It starts with belief in Jesus and the repentance follows. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for repentance. You hear me mention the word quite often. But here's the thing, folks, and write this one down. We preach Jesus to the lost. And in their belief, they become Christians. Who do we preach repentance to? Those who believe. That's the fact of the matter in this situation. Now, those two things function. Listen, let's not, I don't want to be too confusing here. Yes, did belief and repentance go hand in hand in that initial process? Yes. But quite frankly, the message of repentance is, is in many respects that much more applicable to those who are already believers who are continuing to pursue the Lord. It's to the church. It's those of us who have to go, man, I do believe. And so what does my life look like? Do I, in my labor of love, want to be obedient to him? And I continue to repent of these other things in my life because now he's revealed these things and he is greater, he's better. I want him instead. And so I'm going to put these other things behind me. I'm going to turn around and go the other way. You see, it was a work of faith. It was a labor of love. And finally, in verse 10, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This then was that patient hope that they had demonstrated, that they were waiting with eager anticipation for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. They were saying, I want to see Jesus. And I can't even imagine at this particular time, you know, for Paul, Paul, he, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in, in a different way than the rest of the apostles saw him for sure. But for these men to go out and preach Jesus whom they had seen, who they had spent time with. You know, elsewhere in scripture, it says that people saw them and they knew that they had been with Jesus. I think that can still be true of us today, that though we don't see Jesus the way that they saw Jesus, that it can certainly be seen in our lives that we spent time with him and spent time in his presence. But more than that, I just think about these other people whom the gospel was preached to early on as they listened to stories that were told them of who Jesus was and what he had done. That as we listen to these same stories, as we listen to these same accounts as recorded in Scripture, that we would find ourselves like them, like these believers in Thessalonica, and find ourselves going, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. And I know and I believe that Jesus is going to deliver me from the wrath to come. That wrath to come, we're going to consider that later on in our study of Thessalonians. It's that wrath to come that does cause us to really go, okay, Jesus, you, you are my escape plan. I don't have any problem admitting that. When I read what scripture has in store, I, listen, I don't want any part in it. And I'm so thankful that, that he promises me that I'm delivered from that. This is the hope. This is the hope that they had. This is the hope that kept them going. And I would ask you tonight, what's your hope in? What is your hope in? In the midst of everything that's going on right now, what is your hope in? Is it in a tax return or a payroll protection plan? Or is it in, the, in, in some type of other incentive or some stimulus package? Is it in a politician who's going to fix all these things? Or is it in Jesus? Are you hoping in Jesus? Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Scripture is clear, friends, that we are to live lives looking for Him. And that doesn't mean that we just sit inside and we, we put skylights in our houses and we just sit there and meditate and stare out the window and just waiting for him to come. No, if that labor of love is to be obedient, is to follow him, well, then we need to be about his business. We need to be about working for him. But our motivation is his return. 
Let's go back to it again as we close in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. What do we see? These, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And his love language is obedience, right? And so let's think about what he left us with. Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Seek to save the lost. Baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, this is the work that we're to be about. We're to be about fulfilling the Great Commission. And that doesn't mean you have to get up tomorrow and go to Africa or Asia or somewhere else. I mean, that doesn't mean you need to go down to the corner of Sparkleberry and Two Notch, stand on a box with a sign that says, Jesus is coming. That means you need to be about understanding how has God used you and how has he commissioned you to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, how does he want to use you? Tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Because the fact is, if you love him, you obey him. And that's not my words. Those are his. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you hope in him? I'll close with this. In John 21, we have this awesome account where Jesus there uh, uh, towards the end of his time on this earth, he's meeting with uh, Peter. Remember this in John 21. What is he looking to gain from Peter here? What's he looking for from him? So he begins to question him there. It says in verse 4 of chapter 21, But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And so he makes himself sort of known to them, right? And they go, and after they follow his instruction and obedience, they do what he's asked and they say, It's him. It's him. And so they come up on the shore. And at the latter part of that chapter in verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. In verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said in the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, three times in a row there. And yes, we could connect that back to the number of times that Peter denied him. And the important thing here is the question that Jesus is asking him, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And be obedient. Do what I'm asking you to do. You see, Christian, begin our study here through First and Second Thessalonians. We find ourselves a church that is eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ and the very questions that they're asking and the testimony that they're demonstrating is you're living your life in light of that truth. That you believe that Jesus is coming back and it's influencing how you live your lives. It should be our desire that that same testimony would be evident in our own lives. Especially in these times in which we're living. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for me. And so I look forward over the next several weeks to journeying with you through these two letters. And maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're willing, if we allow him to work, that by the end of this, we could find ourselves in a place different than where we began tonight to where we're living our lives each day, even waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, today could be the day. How do you want me to live in light of that truth? Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for your word, for our time together tonight. Lord, I thank you for those that are gathered here for our study, Lord, that are online tuning in. Lord, bless them, Lord. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Lord, may none of us tonight feel a sense of condemnation. Condemnation, Lord, is not of you. Conviction, perhaps, yes, Lord, if there's things in our lives that you want to change, then, Lord, bring the conviction. But ultimately, Lord, may it produce something within each of us, myself included, that we would be a people whose testimony would go forth, Lord, not for our own reputation, but for you, Lord, for your name, that it would go forth, Lord, throughout our community that people would say, oh, I know. I know their love for you. I know their work of faith. I know their labor of love. I know their patient hope. They love the Lord. 
May that be said of each of us, Lord, we pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks for this night. And we ask all these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.